Welcome to the Talks on Law MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now, for the interview. In recent years, we've experienced an acceleration in terms of the number of severe fires in the United States. The communities most affected are now struggling with how to deal with this new harsh reality. Today, we'll take a look at the policies and challenges of the communities most at risk. Hello, and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Today, we're joined remotely by Professor Stephen Miller of the University of Idaho School of Law in Boise. Professor Miller, welcome to Talks on Law. Thanks for having me. Before we jump into the details, Professor, uh, why is this so important right now? You've seen uh, the Forest Service spend $2.6 billion in suppression costs in 2020. California had 4 million acres burned, Oregon had 2 million acres burned, just staggering numbers. And we're seeing just a dramatic increase in the number and size of fires uh, in the last decade. A lot of scientists have said that we're now seeing between the 1970s and 80s compared to now almost four times more wildfires in terms of just sheer number than we were seeing just a, a few decades before. One thing that perhaps our audience isn't that familiar with is that while wildfires affect communities, the defense against wildfires is largely at a federal level. That's right. You know, you see those planes that circle over communities and drop that red stuff, and you see the, you know, you maybe hear about the hotshot crews. All that is provided by the federal government and coordinated through something called the National Interagency Fire Center. In fact, the local and the state governments have very little to do or even um, liability related to those suppression costs. So if, if so much of the work is getting done at the national level, why is community uh, response to wildfire or community preparation for wildfire so important? That's a great question, right? So for having you know more wildfires and bigger wildfires because of climate change and because of forest management issues, part of the problem though is that more people are moving here. If you look at a list of the fastest growing cities, they're almost all either in the West or the South. People are moving to the West because they want to be out in the forests and the trees and the, the lakes and the rivers, right? So they're wanting to be out in nature. So they're building into these ex-urban communities where you have the greatest heightened wildfire risk. And who's in control of that? Well, because of the way that we do development in the United States, it's actually the local governments. It's these 39,000 local jurisdictions across the United States that are our cities and counties that are the ones who control where these developments go. In talking about the community's impact, maybe we can now turn to community wildfire protection plans. What are those? The CWPP process it's, is really, uh, well, it was created by something called the Healthy Forest Restoration Act in 2003, or sometimes referred to as HEFRA. And what HEFRA was trying to do was to create a framework for these federal, state, and local governments to all come together at the community level and figure out how they were going to deal with wildfire. And so the CWPP process is very flexible. HEFRA defines a community very broadly. So it could be a county, it could be a city, it could be an HOA. And 
you can bundle these things, right? So you could have a, a small little one that sort of feeds into a larger one. But the overarching idea is that you're gonna get all these different agencies and governments to come together and on the local level, figure out how they're gonna deal with fire in that community. And what's the, I guess, what's the incentive structure? Is Does HIFRA allow for funding opportunities for these uh, community plans? Yeah, so there, there have been some modest funding structures. But primarily, well, one of the things that it does is it allows you to map the risk. That has been the primary way that there have been funds to assist with that. Wildfires depended upon three things, you know, uh, fuel, heat, and oxygen, as they say. So the, the fuel is one of the key things that they're going to map, right? Which is, well, where do we know that there are trees or, you know, uh, rangeland that has historically burned or that maybe haven't burned for a long time and are kind of due, right, uh, if it's an area that has historically burned. You can create an area that's often referred to as the wildland urban interface. You decide what is the area of risk, and then you can figure out a plan for how you're going to address that risk. Now, historically, the CWPP process was owned by the fire departments and they utilized it primarily as a way to think about the pieces of equipment that they would want to ask for assistance in purchasing or things like that. But increasingly what we're trying to get people to do is to think about it as a broader political and development tool where you can have people from elected officials, local citizens participating in the process from the very beginning working with those state and federal agencies that own land in, a, in the local community and creating a, a common vision together about how they're gonna address the risk. Maybe you can also tee up some of the monumental costs that we're talking about here. And one challenge that we might wanna touch on now is that the costs aren't necessarily borne by the communities where, they, where the damage occurs. Yeah, well, you know, we talked about that $2.6 billion that the federal government has spent on suppression in 2020. You know, a lot of that is disproportionately spent in a few areas where you have this wildland urban interface, right? Trying to protect communities when that fire comes down a slope or over a, a ridge. And it's in those places where you can spend an extraordinary amount of money just trying to save one subdivision or one house. And, you know, there was a University of Wyoming study that noted maintaining and preserving one home in Wyoming had cost over $200,000 in suppression costs for just that one house. So you can spend an enormous amount of money, right? You can't protect every home with that kind of suppression cost. So in a sense, every time a, a community is built in what you call this wildlife urban interface, uh, there's additional risk uh, to the to the system, an additional cost associated with that risk. No, that that that's totally right. And if that federal government, you know, suppression unit can't get there with the big plane or the hotshot crew, it's then going to turn to the local government. And the reality is that these local governments, whether you're a small local government or a big one, they do not have enough tools to address wildfire risk the way that you would address a, a typical house fire. And, you know, an example that I often give is that here in Boise, you know, the local fire chief likes to say that he's got 16 trucks and he can save 16 houses 
And the question is just going to be which one of those he's going to save. Even if you think about a much larger jurisdiction like Denver or, you know, San Diego or whatever, they still, the local government does not have enough resources to save all the homes when that fire comes down a hill. What are these plans doing? I mean, we talk about community wildfire protection plans. What's the approach? And I guess, what can they accomplish? There are some great examples, you know, probably one of the best in the country is around the, the Boulder, Colorado area. Um, and one of the things that it does is it works with the federal land management agencies in that community to create plans for how they are going to address mitigating risk on those lands. We've been suppressing wildfire for the last century. And as a result, we know that there's just a lot of land out there that's just ready to go up in flames. And the agencies don't have the money to deal with all of it at once. And so one of the things that the CWPP can do is it can, the local community can say, hey, we want you to address this particular risk first, okay? Help us out with this so that we aren't talking about the suppression, the massive suppression costs. We can try to prospectively think about managing the risk closest to our community. And here are the things, federal agencies, that we'd like you to do. I mean, you bring up an interesting point. I'm, I'm thinking about these plans, and maybe I'm not understanding. Is it, is it more that local governments, for example, can say in order to build, you would need to show a plan like this? Or perhaps if you'd like some type of tax incentives, your plan needs to meet certain criteria? Well, one of the things we've done is we've tried to encourage people to think about it as a cyclical cycle, right? So that the CWPP is really where everybody's going to get together. You know, the feds, the states, the local governments, they're all going to get together with the community, figure out sort of the big overarching plan. And then for the local government, we want them to then go back and create some sort of mix of regulatory and incentive tools that will work for that community, right? So that's up to that particular community as to what that package of regulations and incentives is gonna look like. And then when you think about creating that, then you've gotta think about how you're going to enforce it, right? In terms of enforcement, you know, a lot of people say, oh, well, it's fire. Let's make the, the, the fire folks go out in, um, the fire department go out and police this. Well, a lot of the fire folks, local government, fire departments, they, they call this being a tree cop right? They don't want to be a tree cop. They don't want to go out and say, well, you know, you've got this non-native species here and, you know, it goes up. So you've got to cut that down and put up some sort of, you know, native vegetation. That is not appealing to a lot of firefighters. You're bringing up a concept that many of us are probably unfamiliar with, which is that certain trees may burn differently than others. And, and it's important to think about that in, in community planning. That's right. You know, a lot of as people have moved from the East Coast to the West Coast, people have brought certain proclivities for certain types of vegetation. And that's cool and all. But the problem is, is that when they come onto a Western landscape, they burn in ways that exacerbate those fire tendencies. And a lot of the native species, the native vegetation is actually fire adapted. You know, uh, it, it can withstand the fire because of the way that it has adapted to being on a fire landscape over centuries. We, we think of it as sort of a four-part approach. You have the community wildfire protection plan, which then sort of tells the local, you know, as part of what it does is it tells the local government, go create a, a mix of 
regulation and incentives that work for you and then enforce that. And then what we suggest is that one of two things is either going to happen. There's either going to be a disaster and you're going to have to respond to it. And that's going to tell you whether your system worked or not. And if even if it didn't, time's going to pass and situations are going to change. And so over time, either through disaster or just as your community changes, you need to start that whole process again, back and up with updating that community wildfire protection plan, thinking back again about your incentives and, and regulations, how you're going to enforce it, and so on and so on, so that it becomes a living document. Practically speaking, what might be a good uh, community plan for a community one year, 10 years later, as that community's either expanded or, or shifted, it may no longer be appropriate. That's right. You know, you think about a place like California, which people talk about it, maybe losing some population in the last part of this most recent decade. But if you look back at California since 2000, it's gained maybe 5 million people. I mean, places like Idaho, which is percentage-wise one of the fastest-growing states. Nevada's been one of the fastest-growing states. Arizona continues to be one of the fastest-growing states. You know, here there was a community adjacent to Boise called Meridian that 30, 40 years ago, it just didn't exist. It was farmland. And now it's got 150,000 people. And so what we're trying to get is actually to get people to think about and actively plan for fast-growth communities. Maybe that is a question of in, of how do you create the right incentives. If you were a municipal leader and your day-to-day issues are how do you pay for this or how do you pay for that, sometimes a long-term risk can be tempting to, to reduce cuts on or to reduce payments for? I think that's right. You know, there's a lot of require a lot of things that are coming to the fore for a city manager or a city council member that of people that have immediate needs. Uh, and you here with wildfire, you're talking about essentially a statistical risk. And you're asking someone to put money and time and talent, right, toward a statistical risk. And it's just much easier to not think about it. This has been a major problem with resilience and disaster planning for forever. And, uh, you know, as this has come to the fore with climate change, you're seeing more and more jurisdictions often create something called a chief resilience officer or something like that. Someone whose job it is to think about these systems and integrate them into local decisions so that people don't have to think about it um, as a specific thing, but they can just think about it as part of their other broader decisions that they make. I'll give you an example that we've tried to pioneer, right? And some places are already doing this, but you know, just to get someone from, if there's a project, a development project that is going to happen in an area that we know has a high risk of wildfire. Why not have someone who deals with wildfire from the local fire department come and be part of that pre-application meeting, right? Which is often the, the coordinated meeting of the building department and the planning department, et cetera. Why not invite someone from the fire department as well? And historically, that just never happened. But you're starting to see it more. And you know we're trying to advocate for this in more communities to just say, hey, let's get everybody on the same page. We know that this is a potential wildfire risk area. Let's just think about what are the entrances and exits going to look like? What's the signage, right? Are we going to have any say on the nature of the vegetation that goes in here, et cetera? Why don't we talk about some of the ways, if communities so chose, that they could reduce risk? You know, there's kind of a couple different ways to think about that. The first is often 
consider it the sort of the simple approach, which is basically it's 100 feet around a house in terms of vegetation clearance and put a metal roof on the home. Okay, if you're in a high risk area, those two things right there are significantly going to address the, the chance that the property would burn if a wildfire comes in its direction. That's the simple approach. The second thing then is to look at sort of nesting different regulatory tools that you can think about working together in different scales. It's kind of thinking about the community scale. Oftentimes that could be something like thinking about a comprehensive plan as we call it in the land use, the land use world. You could think about it at the neighborhood level, sort of like say the, 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 your HOA, right? Like what is your neighborhood or subdivision gonna do, gonna do with this? At the community level, they might decide where to build the roads, perhaps that could create a natural barrier to fires or, or some tools at least for the firefighters to use? Yeah, typically you're going to think about the types of policies that you're going to implement in the development and entitlement process. So that could be set, you could create policies around ensuring that there's multiple roads to access the community. You could create policies around signage that would need to be in a subdivision. You could even, in, you know, and this is just frankly not going to happen in a lot of Western communities, but you could say, you know, we're just not going to build in that certain high risk area. Right. And as a matter of sort of economic development policy in the West, that's just kind of a non-starter in a lot of areas. But those are decisions that you can have at a community scale. The risk is simply too high. We're not going to build here. Or if we do allow the development, you know, thinking about the, the neighborhood scale, you know, that we see this a lot in, in northern Idaho or some other communities. This is a very popular in California. They'll do something called a cluster subdivision. So you developer, you could have built 60 units on that hillside with that property and the current zoning. But if you put it equally across the hillside, it's a significant fire risk. We'll let you cluster those developments into one part and with sort of what would otherwise be substandard lots. And then that allows us to keep the risk in a certain area. And thus we know kind of limiting the exposure to risk on the rest of the parcel. And then there's often two other levels that people will talk about, and what, that's often the, the sort of individual site level, and then the building itself. And this is where it gets a little bit more complicated because historically we have not told people how to manage their properties, right? You know, <laughs> To the extent that we have any sort of conditions on land use in the United States, it's often upfront at that entitlement phase. But the issues with wildfire they are about how you live, right? Do you put a deck on the back that is of a flammable substance or something? When you get down to the building level, what are the nature of the gutters, right? And this is a, a level of detail that for a lot of people, especially in rural Western communities, can feel invasive and it can become problematic. And may just be politically unpalatable at any level. That's right. You know, for instance, a place where I think actually does a really good job of this, but also where the community accepts a more regulatory approach is a place like San Diego, where they've done a lot of this kind of stuff at these different different levels. And the community is largely accepting of it. I think partly because of the higher property values, the recognition of the fire in the community and in a more dense area, people are probably going to be more willing to accept those kinds of regulations. None of these levels that you mentioned is someone thinking about what trees should be planted or how spaced out they would need to be. Yeah, that's kind of the interesting thing, right? So 
there's several different ways that local governments have tried to think about this. One is to try to utilize certain tools like Firewise. Firewise is a nonprofit based in Colorado. They do a lot of different things. They provide educational material. They do a lot of work with helping people to figure out the appropriate vegetation to plant in a community. And then the third thing is that this kind of belt and suspenders approach that they have these certified communities, which require you not only to plant the appropriate vegetation for your wildfire risk, but it also then creates a framework going forward for ensuring things like brush clearance and ongoing maintenance of the community. So what a lot of um, communities in the West are starting to do is to say, well, look, we aren't traditionally going to do this through a regulatory approach, but what we'll do is we'll require a homeowners association, and then we'll ask that homeowners association to join something like Firewise. And then what Firewise will do is it will provide the structure for that HOA to sort of be a good steward of the land in that subdivision. A quick break for the MCLE code. The code for this interview is 071516. That's 071516. Now back to the interview. What about when it comes to bad actors, I suppose, in the fire world? Are there tools that cities or even neighborhoods can use to go after someone who might be doing a few too many or a few too dangerous things on their property in terms of fire? Yeah, and this has been a big issue for a lot of especially rural communities and people that just don't take care of the underbrush. Maybe they've got a bunch of weeds hanging out around their propane tank or they've got just a ton of wood stacked up for the winter next to their house. How do you address that, which we know is just a huge fire risk? And a lot of places have started to utilize what's often referred to as nuisance abatement, which historically was utilized just to maintain compliance with the building code or land use code but they're starting to actually write into their nuisance abatement ordinances the ability for local governments to go out and clear that to make sure that that doesn't become a big risk for the community. So that would give the government the ability to come onto someone's private property and take care of the nuisance themselves? That's right, yeah. And you think you can start to see where this can become very complex, right? You know, you've got someone out there in the wildland-urban interface in a kind of a rural area, and suddenly the government's coming in with a weed whacker and telling them, you know, you've got to get rid of that underbrush. The reality is, is that that is the best way to ensure that that place doesn't go up as, and become just sort of a tinderbox. But the politics of it can be very difficult. Professor, I want to talk a bit about fire insurance. You know, I've heard in this, in this particular topic, some people look to insurance as a way to perhaps address the issue using market forces. Maybe you can explain how insurance is, is impacting fire preparedness and maybe a quick explanation of what that argument is, whether or not you agree with it. Yeah, I mean, the insurance argument is really interesting. So let's just start with, there's sort of maybe two different ways that you could think about insurance as being a, a tool here. Some might argue that, well, we should offer some sort of federally subsidized fire insurance, okay? So sort of like we offer flood insurance. That process 
right, is going to have all the kinds of problems that we've already seen with the flood insurance system, where it just keeps incentivizing people to take risky steps and to continue living in a places where we know that there are disasters. The other is this idea that, well, we shouldn't engage in regulation. And instead, what we should do, let's let the market address the risk. In other words, if it's a risky area for fire, the insurance costs will go up relative to that to address that issue. Yeah. And so in sort of economic speak, we'd say that this would internalize the externalities, right? That the, you know, we, the market knows what the risk is. The market can put a price on that risk and the insurance will build into the price of the home through the insurance policy cost, the, the natural risk of living there. So that's the idea. But the, but the issue can be as those costs go up or as those insurance companies decide that they just aren't going to write policies anymore, which is what you've seen in California, it becomes very politically difficult for politicians to sit by and watch those prices become, for insurance become staggeringly high or for the policies to just not be written anymore. And you saw this in California where there was legislation passed that said that if you were in a zip code either in or adjacent to a fire, the insurance company, if they wanted to operate in California, they could not refuse to provide insurance in those zip codes. This uh, libertarian approach just politically, uh, it was impossible. It just seems like it is going to be very hard to let the market play out because the reality is, is that the risk of those for those individuals in the highest levels of, of wildfire risk, it is just going to be an astronomical cost for them to have insurance. Which would mean what? That these communities would die or that the, the people who live there would just be uninsured? Well, that's the interesting thing, right? So the, the economists would say, well, okay, yeah, so people should just not live there anymore, right? That's the market doing its work. But the reality is, is that politicians have not been willing to go there. And if you think about a place like California, you have 40 million people. There's a lot of people in California that are living in the wildland urban interface or living in some area. We're talking, you know, millions of people, right? And the idea that those people are all going to basically have a home that's worthless because they can't get an insurance policy becomes a very, very tough political decision. So another approach that communities have tried is something that Boulder did, which is essentially, they said, look, here are the types of things that we know reduce your risk. Things, you know, we've talked about some of them, right? Like, let's just stick with, you know, brush clearance or you change out your gutters or whatever. And what they've said is, if you do these things, we, the city of Boulder, will come out and we will certify that you did them. And then we will give you a certificate that you can take to certain insurance companies and they will give you a break on your insurance. So that's another way that local governments have tried to do it. Oh, interesting. So it's, it's look, if, if we do have to come in and backstop your fire insurance, well, you're going to have to do some homework on your end. That's right. It's kind of a sweat equity approach, right? So if the taxpayer is going to be on the hook for what could be incredibly expensive, you can at least do your part to reduce that risk a little bit. That's right. And another approach similar to this that we've seen in some communities here in northern Idaho try is they've said, 
we'll come in and we'll do some of the this initial work for you, things like brush clearance and things, um, which we know can be expensive and everybody not everybody has the tools to do it. We'll do that upfront part, but then you've got to sign an agreement to maintain it for the next five years or 10 years. So that's another interesting approach that some people have tried. One other idea that has been raised would be linking somehow the costs of the firefighting with the communities themselves. Can you explain that? Well, you know, we've talked a little bit about how it's primarily the federal government and so the, the federal taxpayer, right, who bears the burden of the suppression costs. And even though the federal government owns a lot of land in the Western United States, it's the local governments that are deciding where all of the development goes. And so a lot of people have started to say, maybe those local governments should bear some sort of responsibility, or even the individual homeowner should bear some sort of responsibility. Again, those are arguments that people like myself, academics tend to make. Politically, they become very, very difficult to actually implement, right? Because what it could mean is that one fire could not only create significant aesthetic harm and life and property loss, but then the local community would also potentially face a bankruptcy, right? <laughs> so that's, that's very politically challenging. Or be crippled with long-term debt that they you know, have to struggle with for decades. Yeah. And so the politics of addressing these issues becomes extremely complicated because trying to get people to face the music and address the fact that they have made a decision to live in an area that is high risk becomes really, uh, is very challenging in terms of getting them to actually pay that, especially when the federal government has been there for so long since 1910 doing this suppression. People just expect that somebody's going to be there to put that fire out. Before we let you go, maybe we, we don't want to end on a too dire a note. Is there, is there any hope for communities? Is there a silver lining or some type of uh, incentive structure that you think could actually help as communities wrestle with this new uh, wildfire reality? Well, I think if there's a silver lining, especially for those of us that live in the West, this has forced a reckoning with climate change, right? It has forced us to say, look, we know that climate change is happening because we are living it. We're bre quite literally breathing it in the extra smoke in the air every day, not just in California or Oregon, but throughout the West. And so I think that the silver lining may be that this gets us thinking about more broadly about climate change and how we deal not just with fire, but all types of issues related to the environment and how we develop both in the West, but hopefully also throughout the United States. Professor Stephen Miller, thank you for your time today and for joining us. Thank you for having me. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting-edge interviews on the Talks on Law MCLE podcast.